Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Infinitive, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitive's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in the energy in the Western Hemisphere. But today, we have something special for you. Jim, why don't you introduce our guest? So today, we have a special guest, the CEO of the Canadian Energy Center, Tom Olson. Tom, welcome. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, what do you see as the biggest hindrance for the Canadian oil business? Well, for us, it's pipelines, for sure. We have uh, the TMX that is being built that was um, faced some hurdles, which you might know about, uh, was purchased ultimately by the federal government. And is, uh, construction is underway. Uh, but it's access to tidewater. It's, um, you know, getting the product uh, to the coast. Um, and as much as we love the United States as a, uh, uh, as a customer, um, good business dictates that you have more than one customer. And that's what we're endeavoring to do. Okay, so what about this so-called green shift away from fossil fuels? You know, it's interesting. I know in the United States, there's this discussion about the new green deal, and there's a variation of that here. Um, from my perspective, the, the U.S. is seeing the dark side of this in California, and we've seen it here in Canada in the province of Ontario. I mean, some years ago, Ontario's Green Energy Act pushed electricity prices up 75% over competing jurisdictions. Um, really, what we need to be focused on is uh, the ability for uh, the oil sector here in Canada to be the, the backbone of economic recovery. I mean, this um, industry has done that for decades and will continue to do that. Uh, $359 billion in uh, tax revenue to the province and the feds uh, from 2000 to 2018. Um, so, there, sure, everybody, uh, including me, including this industry, uh, wants to do, um, you know, reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions, their environmental footprint. And to that point, um, I think something that isn't widely known and needs to be known, that in Canada, the oil sands, they're the biggest investors in clean tech. It's more than a billion dollars a year um, that the major players collectively put towards clean tech. So. Uh, sure, we want to improve environmental performance, and the industries here are very responsible, and they're doing that. That's great. So, Tom, um, we have listeners all around the world. What would you like the world to know about the Canadian oil business? You know, probably a variation of, of what I just said, this uh, commitment to the environment, this um, uh, the, uh, another very important point to be made is Indigenous opportunity. There is a lot of effort and partnerships that are uh, created uh, in the oil sands um, since two, 2012. The oil sands uh, producers have spent $13 billion with Indigenous-owned businesses. There are partnerships with uh, companies along pipeline routes. Um, we have done a lot of work at the Canadian Energy Centre highlighting the opportunity for uh, indigenous uh, indigenous groups along in British Columbia, for example, where we have folks, uh, leaders, others in the community saying this is a way out of poverty, that um, 
you know, far from that they appreciate the cooperation uh, and the input that they um, that that they are uh, are taken into serious account by the industry, uh, so that the land and the air and the water um, is protected, and they really appreciate the economic opportunity to feed their families, to see a future, to build homes. So I think that's a second thing that they sometimes uh, what you see in the media is this notion that uh, you know Indigenous folks are opposed. Uh, to oil and gas, and the, that is patently false. It, it, it opposed as a group, as in, in their entirety. I mean, as with every, um, you know, every group, there there are different perspectives, but there are a lot of there's a lot of support for oil and gas and the benefits that accrue. All right, thank you, Tom, for your insight and for joining us today. Uh, Jim, I understand you got a lot to say about U.S. pipelines. So there's always been a lot of regulations, restrictions, and lawsuits in the oil business. However, before 2019, had anyone ever heard of NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, or the Army Corps of Engineers Nationwide Permit 12 program? No, probably not. They're just operational safety hoops to jump through to make sure that the pipeline was safe. It, it was regulatory drudgery. Then the world changed in U.S. politics. Everything, including energy, got politicized. Once everything got politicized, it got polarized. Suddenly, Republicans are only about big oil, and Democrats are only about the New Green Deal. The population doesn't feel this way, but politicians have drawn their legal battle lines. So let's look at a couple examples. We heard Tom mention uh, KXL, Keystone XL Pipeline. This pipeline is being held up in the U.S. due to an April ruling from the District Court of Montana suspending the Army Corps of Engineers Nationwide Permit 12 program. Care to guess which political party that Governor Steve Bullock of Montana belongs to? Nationwide Permit 12 program is designed to simplify the process that was created during the Obama era's court rulings that muddied the waters of the Clean Water Act of 1972. The net effect is no pipeline or electric power line, can cross any waterway. KXL will cross the Milk River and the Missouri River. The greater impact is 75 projects in the U.S., an estimated cost of $2 billion across the various projects. Who would want to increase the cost of an energy project? Hmm. The Attorney General in Montana is Tim Fox, and he has petitioned the district court in Great Falls, Montana, to intervene in this lawsuit. He writes, The obstructionist litigation against it, Keystone XL Pipeline, has dragged on for far too long. It's time to settle the matter and begin construction. Anybody want to guess on the political affiliation? Yep, that's right. He's running for governor of Montana on the Republican ticket. For what it's worth, there are already 23 pipelines running through Montana. So after a Supreme Court ruling and some more legal wrangling, we're down to hearing public opinion. Montana public a public hearing is September 28th, with South Dakota and Nebraska to follow in the next two days. If anyone listening would like the dial-in details, feel free to contact me. For example, number two, let's look at Dakota Access Pipeline, DAPL. 
Dakota Access Pipeline was designed to take Bakken crude from the Williston area of North Dakota through South Dakota, through Iowa, and into the southern Illinois tank farm that is Potoka. For those that are geographically challenged, find St. Louis, Missouri on a map and go straight east 220 miles on Interstate 64. Dapple has been politically charged since the day it was conceived. In episode 11, I went through some of the legal wranglings that are still in play. Now we'll look at some of the objective elements. There have been multiple proposed routes. The route that was agreed upon for the crossing of the Missouri River follows an already existing utility easement. In fact, there are seven pipelines in the immediate vicinity and literally two 42-inch pipelines going under the river in this exact easement. And they've been there for decades with no issues. These pipelines do not need to be submerged, yet they are. Dapple goes even further and goes down into the clay 100 feet below the bottom of the river. And apparently this is not good enough. There are also high-voltage power lines that cross this easement above the water, bringing green electricity to the area from the Oahai Hydroelectric Dam. Nobody talks about that, though. There was even an attempt to call a portion of the utility easement a sacred burial ground. Archaeologists were brought in and studied the entire area around the easement and found no bones and no evidence any Indian burial ritual of any kind, nor would any tribe claim the area as a sacred burial ground. That position has been walked back. I'm not, I'm not criticizing the Standing Rock Sioux or the Lakota tribes that live on the Standing Rock Reservation. In fact, I have immense respect from one of the main protesters named Faith Spotted Eagle. What she has done for the women of the Lakota tribes rivals anything any of the great leaders of the Lakota have done. Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, all of them. My questions are about the motivation of the organization prompting and paying for this protest and is claiming to be seeking justice for the earth. Regardless of whatever happens with this pipeline, I wonder if this organization dissolves if a bill is passed whereby the donors are made public. Very interesting. So our listeners are well acquainted with Jim and my thoughts on influence. Uh, Jim, tell us about Mexico. So Mexico has two big issues and two nagging issues to deal with. The single biggest problem Pemex must face is debt. Let me give you some perspective. Pemex makes about 87 billion US dollars in revenue, has 107 billion in financial debt, and 77 billion in unfunded pension liabilities. As a frame of reference, revenue-wise, they're about half the size of Chevron, but have 270% more people than Chevron. These staggering burdens severely limit everything they can do. Economic theory suggested open up the Mexican market so foreign companies can form joint ventures with Pemex. Essentially, give away part of the upside in order to make some progress forward. That required a constitutional amendment. On August 11th, 2014, then-President, Mexican President Enrique Peña, Peña Nieto signed into law the 21 components that created a pretty comprehensive energy reform. I say pretty comprehensive 
because they forgot one pretty key element, governance. This created big issue number two, eventual constitutional crisis. The initial constitutional crisis was opening up Pemex to partnerships. However, President Nieto had market opinion and some big dollar oil companies behind him. The dollars proved to be too tempting. Mr. Nieto, former head of Pemex Emilio Lazoya, and finance minister Luis Vinagaray are all currently under indictment. This corruption has led President Obrador to back away from President Nieto's open market policy. To restore trust and try to move Pemex forward under this new burden, President Obrador has realized the governance limitation and moved back closer to making Pemex a national oil company. This move back against the fresh new constitutional amendment is creating a constitutional crisis that was hoped to correct a constitutional crisis that was to correct a national oil company crisis. As you can imagine, this is exasperating a nagging issue, political rancor. The Mexican political power structure is similar but different from the U.S., ruled by a constitution, federation of self-governing states, three branches of government, yada, yada, yada. What makes Mexico different is that its members in the lower house of Congress, there are 500 of them, cannot be reelected to consecutive terms. The net result of this, among other things, is that state governors command more power than does the national legislative branch. Why do I mention any of this? There are 31 state governors. 17 are from the Institutional Revolutionary Party, PRI, and generally centralist in their actions. Here comes the contentious part. There are nine from the National Action Party, PAN, and they are roughly the equivalent of the Republican Party in the U.S. The U.S. version of the Democratic Party is represented by three state governors in President Obrador's Revolutionary Democratic Party, PRD but only one of them from AMLO's home state of Tabasco is fully supportive of the president. The point of all this, as President Obrador tries to make any changes, he's being met with substantial resistance. These alliances are a big deal in Mexico's for Mexico's fourth largest export, which is energy. But they will determine Mexico's fate for the next 20 years as it involves their top three exports vehicle export market, electronics export market, and the manufactured goods markets. The last nagging of Mexico's energy problems is theft. Yep, punch a hole in the pipe, drain the gasoline, sell it on the black market, theft. When President Obrador took over in December of 2018, Pemex was saying 56,000 barrels a day was being stolen from pipelines, trucks, trains, and tank farms. Now Pemex is saying that number is down closer to 5,000 barrels a day. That is 210,000 gallons of gasoline and diesel being stolen every day. A crackdown on the cartels and encasing a 38,000 barrel a day products pipeline in a solid foot of cement have both helped. The knockoff effect of this theft is that no foreign company will own the gasoline in transport 
within Mexican borders, which means a cash-strapped Pemex has to be the company to float the money to move refined products around the country and assume the risk of being stolen. Okay, so Corey, where are we off to today? Well, let's start off with Venezuela. So the Venezuela National Assembly's term ends in January 2021, and it's December 6th election plans that already resulted in increased ire from the United States. Ire in the form of sanctions, as the happenings look to potentially benefit and strengthen Maduro's regime. Eight of Maduro's ministers have resigned to campaign for seats, and one sanctioned politician, Luis Para, is part of the Electoral Council to oversee the December elections. Para, according to Venezuela's Supreme Court, is the Assembly's speaker. But the Venezuelan Supreme Court has effectively been sanctioned as well, so the U.S. recognizes Juan Guaido as a parliamentary speaker, uh, which, of course, is also Venezuela's recognized interim president. So Guaido has administrative control over CITCO's board, and, of course, Maduro retains control over PDVSA and some sanctions on the company. There are many of us perhaps saw some sort of eventual end, but not necessarily a recovery, to Venezuela's oil woes. Guaido has lost some of his popularity. Former opposition leaders aligned with Guaido have publicly broken rank and intend to participate in the December 6th election. What happens then if these elections go on as scheduled? Well, the last remaining Venezuelan institution that hasn't been deeply sanctioned passes into Maduro control. For oil, this will certainly mean continued sanctions. The talks of ending products for crude swaps sanctions waivers with ENI, Repsol, and Reliance will likely go through. Also, Chevron sanctions waiver ends in December as well. But don't let a good sanction get in the way of running your business. Refinitiv is currently tracking a laden VLCC that recently left the Jose terminal is bound for, as it has indicated, in Singapore. Uh, we'll have to see where it actually ends up. Oh, what a twisted tale. So what's happening in Brazil? Yes. So we always talk about Brazilian crude production, and I've discussed Petrobras's refining asset divestments. But something consistent with our theme today is more movement in the renewable space. And this comes to my mind as agricultural representatives have recently been imploring the Brazilian Ministry of Mines and Energy, or MME, to carefully consider the decarbonization credits currently in review. Renewable Bio, a fairly recent regulation aimed at reducing Brazil's GHG emissions to comport with its Paris Climate Agreement targets, would require a 10% reduction in transportation-related emissions by 2028 and put 2030 share of biofuels in the energy mix to 18%. And since I've been looking a lot lately at middle distillates, by 2023, excuse me, the biodiesel blending requirement in Brazil will rise to 15%. Not so fast. Last month, Brazil reduced the volume requirements of biodiesel blending to 10% from 12%, as the country expected fourth quarter 2020 biodiesel to be in short supply. Uh, This is funny, as the requirement was just raised from 10% to 12% on March the 1st. Biodiesel production in Brazil is regulated, and production this year is up 6% year over year. And contrary to governmental assessments, Biodiesel producers have stated that they have the capacity to meet demand. But Brazilian agricultural regions have seen an uptick in COVID cases and increased buying of soybeans by China, 
So the biodiesel producer's optimism has called this into question. Despite COVID and an 85% refinery utilization rate in the country, we've seen diesel imports increase recently. U.S. diesel exports have been declining for the past few weeks, but aside from a momentary blip, uh, diesel exports in the U.S. to Brazil have remained healthy. And exports from other locales, say India, have shown up in the scene. So what are the biofuels regulations? Uh, they will continue to impact the oil industry in Brazil, but based on their most recent um, shall we say flexibility? I have a feeling that for the next few years, the story will still be mostly about petroleum fuels demand, refining, and crude production. So let's talk about crude production. Absolutely. So, you know, every story about ExxonMobil lately that comes through ICON ends up as a most read. When I listened to the last earnings call, much was said about Guyana, and for good reason. Now, please listen to our podcast to get my previous analysis on Guyana. But of note, recently, is Exxon's announcement announcement of its 18th discovery in a deepwater Stabrook block. This brings offshore recoverable estimates to over 8 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Well, the regulations piece comes in, however, is with the new government. I mentioned that after months of contest, the new government has been installed, but it is not particularly keen on previous production agreements. Well, now the government is looking to raise local content requirements in the country. And though Exxon is looking to start production at another FPSO in 2022 to the tune of 220,000 barrels a day, it has put a pause on plans for a third FPSO due to this and other negotiations with the administration. Exxon had planned for production in the Stalbrook block to reach 750,000 barrels per day by 2025, but this pause is a real threat uh, to push this production level out. That, and depending on the nature of the content regulations, the production curve could be affected. This is the first year of Guyanese crude production, and where success has largely been achieved due to experience and talented operators, Exxon, Hess, and even Sinook. Depending on the level of local content, we can see some real slowing of the efficiency in which this crude is currently and has planned to be produced. We'll see how this continues to play out. That's all for me today, guys. So, Jim? What's out? So we heard some of the details from multiple regions about how politically charged energy and energy infrastructure is becoming. The polarization that comes from politicizing energy is not beneficial for anyone on either side. As Tom mentioned, there are many more beneficial avenues like ESG standards and clean technology that we as a community can go about to bring safe, cheap energy to everyone in the Americas. Next week, Corey and I will be talking about the energy reserves of the Americas. All right. Thanks, everyone. And again, thank you, Tom, for joining us today. Have a great week, everybody.